The following is brought to you by Andy Beach, Paul Boyer, Michael Bolick, and Will Harris. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program. Happy Independence Day. We are at the beginning of the Independence Day weekend. Oh, my God, how amazing would it be if this were 2020 and we had July 4th on a Saturday? Oh, (sighs) this is why we can't have nice things. We'll be we'll be celebrating though, you know. Uh, here here in the uh, uh, here in Oakland, we're gonna we're gonna have a nice little viewing of the Hamilton on Disney Plus. We're gonna listen to fireworks. Fireworks. All right. So fireworks in Oakland have been going off for the last few weeks, right? And they are loud. Like I, I it is whatever was supposed to be for either like city stuff or. Like, uh, Disney, whatever fireworks Disney was going to get, apparently, are now all getting sold uh, 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 out of the back of a truck in Chinatown. Like, there are mortar shells going off. There was one, and here's the other thing that sucks, and I don't know what this, if this is different on the East Coast, but on the West Coast, it gets, it doesn't get dark till 9.30. So... It's 9.30 when people start setting off the big fireworks they really want to see. And it had to be like midnight when, and I'm old, right? I, I, I go to sleep at 10 these days. I'm trying to, I'm just old. I'm old as, I'm, I'm old as dirt, right? Anyway, there was a bomb that went off that set off car alarms uh, at had to be 12 or one. I don't think that anyone's going to sleep in Oakland for the next three days. So this might be the most coherent you hear me for a while. We got a lot to talk about though. We are going to talk about the villages. We have more information on the villages, including exactly how much of a Trump money pit it is. That is in our interview with Dave Leventhal, he's back! He's got a new gig, he's writing more, uh, uh, we have breaking news on the FEC, and if you know, the one person who cares the most about the FEC on the planet is Dave Leventhal, we have updates on Biden overtaking Trump in terms of fundraising for the, the second quarter. We're also gonna do uh, a little bit more of the mailbag! You guys like the mailbag in our bonus episode last week, so we're bringing it back for the regular Friday show. And uh, we got some really good questions, including about uh, a mail-in ballot, specifically about what happened in Patterson, New Jersey. We have uh, more conversation about police reform and why Tammy Duckworth is not the slam dunk VP for Biden. But first... Could cause some situations, uh, especially when you know you're asking to potentially to pull police off of um, violent crime, fighting violent crime, uh, as well as just nationally, we're seeing such tension between the public and and the police and many governmental authorities. So that is a concern. That is the voice of Glenn Jacobs. Glenn is the mayor of Knox County, Tennessee. A county that just voted 8-1 to to impose a mask mandate. Something that's happening around the country. Articulating his lone opposition vote is Mayor Jacobs. Now, to be totally honest, I don't necessarily even think that his 
reasonings on uh, uh, why he would oppose it are necessarily fundamentally or ideologically flawed or ugly. So why? Why, friends, am I telling you about a local vote in Knox County, Tennessee this week? Because Glenn Jacobs is formerly known as Kane in the World Wrestling Entertainment Company. He is the devil's favorite demon. He is the Undertaker's brother. He was born of fire and flame. And most importantly, he debuted and wore throughout his career a mask. (laughs) I mean, there's not a lot that we can laugh about. There's not a lot that we can laugh about when it comes to coronavirus and mask mandates, but the masked wrestler who becomes a politician voting against the mandate for masks is, is, it tickles me a little bit. It's pretty funny. Although I guess if you wore a mask your entire life and, and now you were being ordered by your government to do it, maybe you'd bristle a little bit. Kane's mask did eventually lead to a version where it did not block his nose and mouth, though. So maybe he's fine with masks that just cover the forehead, eyes, and cheeks, as the cane mask, uh, <laughs> the cane mask did. <laughs> oh man, I do think that that there is there is a conversation. All right, let's get serious. Let's get serious here. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, uh, West Hollywood Station, uh, notably yesterday, went even further when it came to the mask mandate, saying that they would fine people if you are caught outside without a mask. It's a $250 fine and $50 in fees. And not to echo Mayor Jacobs, but it is odd that we are only two days away from a month of very, very loud public voices saying that they want less interactions with the police, federal government looking into reform, and now we're giving the police another reason to write a ticket. Now, here's where the balance comes in. The the, the balance comes in Well, if you have a mask mandate and people aren't listening to it, then what do you do? And I don't have an answer to that. But I don't know if it's creating more opportunities for the police. Now, in Knox County, I don't think that that's going to be an issue. The the sheriff of Knox County has come out and said that he is going to rely on the public to enforce this, that, that he does not believe he has the constitutional authority to enforce a mask ban. But police in one of the most iconic gay neighborhoods in America, in West Hollywood, you know, (sighs) we made it not fun. I went, I started this segment, I started this segment saying, here's going to be the fun little thing. I'm going to do a fun little thing for everybody. Everybody's going to have fun today. We're going to look at our world, our challenging, complicated world, and we are going to say it's fun time for us. No. No, I... No. Oh, jeez. I made it real. Boo me! I believe these words came from the Pokemon movie. Life can be a challenge. Life can seem impossible. It's never easy when there's so much on the line. But you and I can make a difference. The voice of Herman Cain during his uh, speech leaving the race in 2012, quoting 
the Pokemon movie. That quote had been a part of his stump speech for a while. He had it had been called out as being part of the Pokemon movie. And he owned it. I always liked that about Herman Cain. That he actually said, like, no, you want to know what? I don't care where it came from. I like the quote. So if that makes me a weeb, then Herman Cain is a weeb. Herman Cain also has COVID. <laughs> so that's the news. I wasn't just remembering that moment. And, of course, the best political ad of all time, Herman Cain smoking ad. Just look it up. Uh, if I start talking about it now, I'll talk about it for the next hour. But... Herman Cain has COVID and is in an Atlanta hospital. He attended the Trump rally in Tulsa. This is the kind of high profile stuff that you didn't want coming out of that rally. If you are Donald Trump, the rally itself, obviously in the moment, wasn't the power pitch they wanted it to be. Does not look like it has fared any better as we've uh, moved on through the week. There are some rumblings now. Uh, uh, there was uh, uh, some some shifting in the leadership in the Trump campaign. Now the new New York Times narrative is that Jared Kushner is effectively running the campaign. Now he will say that Donald Trump runs the campaign because he knows how to stay in charge of the campaign. But apparently there's a power struggle between Jared Kushner and Brad Parscale. A Maggie Haberman article in the New York Times included a scene in which Kushner repeatedly belittled and told Parscale to shut up. You know that that's what Jared Kushner wants you to think because Maggie Haberman is writing it and Jared Kushner speaks to Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. This is known, Khaleesi. I would not be shocked if we don't see Parscale step down by the end of the month. Calling it right now. Things are not going great. Trump likes to change parts when things are not going great. Three campaign managers during a winning campaign in 2016. He, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I get, I get a feeling. I get a feeling that the that the sharks are circling for Brad Parscale. Politics. They ask me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I sure did. The mailbag can be found at theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Write in about whatever you want. If you guys like this, I'll tell you. The better emails we get, the more likely we are going to keep this a segment on Friday. So far, we've gotten great emails. So far, we've had great voices and perspectives. If they drop off, I'm taking it out. First things first, shout out. I forget who it was on Twitter, but they get full credit for me making Shoal Did by Dear Silas, the new mailbag theme song. I love this song, and I'm glad that I now know it. All right. Jeff writes, I have a question when it comes to police reform, and I'll just lay all my cards out on the table. I'm a white 39-year-old from Michigan who claims to be an independent, but I lean Democratic as I've had a mom for a teacher and best friends as teachers. My question is, do you think it would be wise for Republicans to get police reform in the books while they have control over the Senate to prevent a blue wave from coming through in November and having a little opportunity to stop a bill that the Democrats want, or is that just me being overly optimistic for November? In terms of the Senate leadership, uh, you can either play to win or play to lose. And so let me take you back four years ago, the unfortunate and sudden death of Justice Antonin Scalia then President Barack Obama says, all right, we got this guy for you. And I'll tell you what, he's the most moderate you're going to get. So you either put this man on the Supreme Court or I'm going to put somebody that is so liberal, you will never get elected again. None of you's 
will get elected because I'm going to put somebody that tilts this court so far to the left, or sorry, I won't, Hillary will, because Hillary's going to win. Hillary's going to put somebody on that court that is so far to the left, you are going to have to answer questions about them for the rest of your natural political life. So you go put Merrick Garland on that on that court right now. And you have a question. Do you play to win or do you play to lose? The way you play to lose is to put Merrick Garland on the court. Take Obama at his word. The way you play to win is to risk it and say, hey, look, we can now make the Supreme Court an actual, like you are voting for a Supreme Court pick right now. If that motivates voters on the right, then then you can you can basically hang this Supreme Court selection up at the top of the arena like it's a, a, a ladder match. Now, you might decide that it's smart. The numbers are being laid out to you in a way that makes you think that it's safe to take what is being offered. But the man making that decision... <laughs> Is cocaine Mitch McConnell? So, no. I do not think that the that the Republicans are going to feel pressured. I think that Mitch McConnell is going to play to win again. And if anything, things will not happen because he will say they will be better off once we win more of a majority in the Senate and once Trump is in there for another four years, blah, blah, blah. So, no. I, I do not think whether or not You are correct that there will be a blue wave. I don't think Mitch McConnell will play as if there is going to be a blue wave. Matthew writes, I know you've talked about mail-in ballots a lot. I saw an article about mail-in ballots in the Wall Street Journal this morning and did some additional research. I hadn't heard of this before this morning, so I dug up some basic articles in case you hadn't seen it either. I realized that you have generally good takes on things and wanted to see if you had any ideas on how to address these potential issues. The links you sent me were all about uh, a vote that happened in Patterson, New Jersey, where like 16% of the mail-in vote was not initially counted. And this is a problem. Matthew goes on. As somebody who would like to see mail-in ballots in the long term, I'm wondering the best way to address the concern that this election raises. I really enjoyed the prior segments you did on this, so I'm not trying to offer my take, but I'd like to hear yours. Thank you, Matthew. And feel free to offer your take. You're allowed. It's the mailbag segment. Uh, I've got problems with mail-in balloting. I I just, look, here's the the problem that I have with this argument, is that when I say I got problems with mail-in balloting, I'm not saying that we should never use it. I'm not saying that it's not a thing that we can do. I'm saying that we need to understand what the vulnerabilities of it are and we can't just you know do do the do the Tourette's thing mail in balloting as safe as regular balloting it's like well I mean we're actually just putting our heads in the sand when you're not acknowledging the fact that all forms of electioneering all forms of ballot counting have ways that you can hack it and if we're going to say that part of why we don't want to do online voting is because it breaks the chain of custody. That your vote then goes into a server which cannot be kept track physically. And that is a problem. Then just based on lack of practice and incompetence and therefore lack of effective oversight then you're going to have problems like this. Even if they're not malicious, you're going to have people that misplace things. Now, when you got an election that we have now that is pretty big, people are really fired up about, then those issues might be even more intense by November. But I do think, at the very least, mail-in ballots will be a scandal magnet going forward. Nelson writes, I'm keeping this short. Tammy Duckworth, she seems too perfect. Black woman, disabled veteran, came back from the brink of death to become a senator from Illinois. Could actually do the job if something happened to Biden. 
Can you imagine the blowback if Trump tried to attack her? What am I missing? Uh, fame. She's not famous enough. She doesn't have the name recognition that Kamala Harris does, which is why Kamala Harris is going to be the vice presidential nominee. Michael writes, in the recent mailbag episode, there was an email about how other agencies could be used to create, or sorry, could be used or created to take duties away from police. It was brought up that there wasn't, that uh, that it wasn't part of the defund the police conversation that everyone's having while it's the entire point of defunding the police. Taking currently allocated funds away from the current standard, in the U.S. at least, of responding with armed and non-specialized police force and providing funding to other areas of the community uh, to uh, people trained in these communities or sorry, trained in these responses. My question is, is it is this a failure of the media to report the second half of the movement, defund the police and fund the community? Or a failure of those asking for change for not elaborating on the second half? You would also mention that it would require paying these people more. Good. That's where the funds of the defunded are going. I'm going to pause the email here and and just say my my point was that it would require further specialized training if you were going to take current police officers and retrain them that would take more funding or just more training of police than they currently have now would take more money we continue you had also said that you'd like to hear from cops on the issue i don't at least not as the sole voice on what the police should and should not be doing We've heard from them for decades, and their answer is more police, more power, and less accountability because it makes their job more difficult. I want to hear from other members of our communities about what aspects they could take over if they had the required support. What could social workers do with comparable funds to other agencies? How could the DOT handle traffic issues? How can we handle noise complaints without sending an armed government agent to tell them to turn down Baby Shark? I appreciate the difficult situation we have put police in as a society. We've asked them to take care of problems that we don't want to deal with, and society collectively doesn't want to deal with a lot of things. We should start asking how we can deal with problems with more nuance. Maybe a new agency in itself in charge of delegating responsibility instead of dumping all of our problems into an armed agency. If the only tool you have is an armed force, then you treat everything as if it were an active shooter. Michael, uh, thank you so much for writing in. I think you got to why I want to talk to cops in the final paragraph. And this, if there's anything that I want to do with this podcast, it is to get to the third paragraph. Because the second paragraph, I can appreciate your passion, but it's an opinion. And it's an opinion that's already hardened. I don't want to hear from cops because cops say that more cops are what you need. And in my experience... That's part of it, but it's not all of it. And to be quite honest, if we actually want to get to a point where there are, where we can take a little bit of the pressure off police officers and we can maybe delegate some of the stuff that is not in their specialty to cut down on interactions where, where cops are, are even in a position where violence could happen then guess who are the people that know what those situations are? Cops. Like, cops don't want to shoot people, in my opinion. Some do. Lunatics do. I'm not saying that there's never been a cop that wants to shoot people, but in my opinion. And, you know, again, I've... Police officers in my family, I I, I have a, a bit of a different perspective on this. I believe that they are good people. I think I think it takes a brave person to do it. And even if you get into it for reasons that aren't the most pure, you there is a sacrifice. There's a grind to it that is hard. The point here is to create a more I mean equitable sounds weird. To, to create a community that is happy with the people that keep it safe. And have the people who keep it safe be in a position where they don't feel like they are on the razor's edge at every moment. And that's why I do think that specifically if we're talking about reforming police, you got to hear from police. That's our mailbag. You want to be a part of it? The Young American. 
at gmail.com. Folks, we're getting there. We're getting there. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. The, the, the way to 1K is paved with you. You know, we're, we're, we're closing in on that final 25. 25 people. I know how many people listen to this show. And I know how many patrons we have. Over 970. So of that, the rest of yins, to use a Pittsburghian phrase, we just need 25. 25 people that either want to join at the $1 Big Tent level. Just kick me four, uh, $4 a month to show that you care about this kind of independent journalism. Or you can come in at the $3 club. That means you get two bonus episodes each and every week. Or, or Titanic $10 tier. Get your name read at the end of the show. How about the donor class? That's big money. Big money. But if you want to show that you appreciate this program, well, then you can do it there. I appreciate each and every person that has taken the time out of their day to do this. I think we're going to hit 1K, and I think we might hit it sooner rather than later. Hell, it might be this week. Do you want to be the 1,000th patron? Keep an eye on that clock. But we got to get there first, so don't don't like go waiting for it. TakePoliticsSeriously.com is where you go. Also a reminder that I do a free political newsletter. Five days a week. Five stories a day. Monday through Friday. It's If, if you like this program, you're going to love it. It, it has grown to become its own beast and I could not be more proud of it. Go ahead and check it out. Free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com It's free. It's political. It's a newsletter. Returning to the show today is one of our favorite guests of all time. Dave Leventhal. Formerly of Politico, formerly of the Center for Public Integrity. Now he is at Business Insider. And uh, uh, it means we're going to see a lot more Dave Leventhal content. I'm super, super excited about it. Let's talk all about money with our money man, Dave Leventhal. Welcome to the show, Dave. It is wonderful to be back with you, Mr. Young. <laughs> now, uh, uh Man, a lot, a lot to get to with you because you have a new job. Uh, you have actually covered two intensely interesting stories, and uh, as you are known here on on PX3, you are the man who knows where all the money is going. And there has recently been a sea change in who is the victor in terms of the month by month fundraising. So let's. Let's actually just start right now with that. Uh, Biden announces that he not only has outraised Donald Trump in June, but that is his first quarter win, I think, probably in in totality, right? Because I don't think he ever won a quarter in the primaries. Uh, why has Biden turned the corner or has he? The money balance has shifted, and, and there's a couple reasons for it that, that we should get into. First of all, let's just step back and go back to January of 2017. Well, what happened then? Of course, Donald Trump was inaugurated president of the United States. But what people forget is that on the day of Donald Trump's inauguration, he did something else, which was file paperwork to raise money for his reelection in 2020. No presidential candidate, or should I say no president, had ever done that before so early where they were filing for reelection almost immediately when they became president of the United States. What that allowed Donald Trump to do is just gobble up huge, huge sums of money for the two years really before any Democrats were officially announcing their run. So bottom line, he had a huge financial head start on Joe Biden. But Joe Biden, of course, once he solidified for all intents and purposes the Democratic nomination, all that money that was going to 
Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris or any of the other 20-some candidates on the Democratic side suddenly was flowing the way of Joe Biden, including some Bernie Sanders dollars, too. So Joe Biden has become the beneficiary of that. There are, frankly, a lot of people who have maxed out for Donald Trump and have hit the legal limit for how much they can give to Donald Trump's campaign among big dollar donors. So as a result, Joe Biden, it's almost not that surprising that the balance has shifted his way over the past couple of months. Don't want to downplay that because it's a major deal. Uh, Donald Trump still has more money cash on hand than Joe Biden at this point. But Biden's doing pretty well. And hey, this is Joe Biden, who was a terrible fundraiser for the most part during the balance of the Democratic primary. This is a big deal for him. And and yeah, this was a win, but a fairly photo finish when it comes to campaign finance, right? Based on both announced numbers, I believe it was like uh, 141 million for Biden and like 136 million for Trump, which granted $7 million to me and you would be a very exciting number. But in the world of big money, general election campaign finance, 7 million is is a little bit more of a speck of dust, right? Yeah, and you don't want to overstate the importance of Joe Biden taking in a few extra million dollars between his campaign and the Democratic National Committee, which is the number that we're talking about, sort of the universal Biden world number. And also, too, there's another factor here, Justin, which is that it doesn't account for any of the numerous outside organizations that are in the orbit of the Trump campaign or in the orbit of the Biden campaign that are not strictly run by the campaigns, because legally they can't be. And those include super PACs, which can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money. And also, too, to some extent, certain types of political nonprofit organizations, which same deal, they can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money and sort of have the added sneaky bonus of trading in dark money. And what is dark money? It's secret political money that can't be traced to a flesh and blood human source. So we've got this swirl of money that's going around here that uh, some is controlled by the campaign, some is controlled by the party, some by these super PACs and nonprofits. We're talking hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars by the end. We will be talking in the billions of dollars, and it's going to be even without all the travel and without the traditional campaigning still as expensive as any election we've ever seen. And and that's saying a lot in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, it is. (laughs) And and for the record, we're a long way away from the Democratic primary uh, uh, having as one of their talking points the idea of which super PAC you're going to take money from if you're going to take money from super PACs. Joe Biden has made no such promise in any element of when and where and how he'll take money, right? I always always love playing the game with people of go back uh, on this date a year ago and see what the candidates were, were talking about, whether it's political money or any other issue. If we were talking strictly about political money, we'd have this huge roiling, rolling debate among Democratic candidates over all the types of money that they didn't want to take. I'm not going to take lobbying money. I'm not going to take oil money. I don't have a super PAC. I mean, this is the kind of debate that was going on among the Elizabeth Warrens and Bernie Sanders and the rest. And yeah, Joe Biden right now, he's not talking about political money in any terms whatsoever, except for one thing, which is how he's going to raise it. So You can pretty much forget all that stuff that happened in the Democratic Party uh, primary. This is full on general election mode. This is all about for Joe Biden beating Donald Trump and pretty much with a with a couple of caveats. And this is no holds barred for Joe Biden. Any way that he can go and raise money and beat Donald Trump is going to be a tool that he not only has in his toolbox, but is prepared to use at this point. The most consequential quarter in general election fundraising is the quarter that we are now officially in, Q3, that will lead, obviously, right up into the meat of our uh, election season. You said it's almost expected that Trump took the L in Q2. Who would you expect to fundraise more in Q3? I I think it's going to be fairly even. Joe Biden may have the edge for the reasons we discussed a moment ago because he still has extra capacity, because a lot of people who hadn't donated to him during the primary season or had not been a Joe Biden fan and is now coming around to him, they may be making their donations later in the game compared to Trump voters, who is effectively the entire Republican Party 
and Trump donors, entire Republican Party, not not counting like, you know, the Never Trumpers and the Lincoln Project guys. And all sure. That, but that's yes. A very small minority. And uh, so you had with Donald Trump a lot of people who were just making donations to his campaign just a heck of a lot earlier than the Democrats were making to Joe Biden. Hence, Joe Biden kind of getting this rush of money later in the game um, versus Donald Trump. So, yeah, if Biden wins in July and August and September in the cash dash, don't be shocked by it. Don't read too much into it. It's definitely going to help Joe Biden, uh, but it's not going to give him some sort of, you know, crazy, massive uh, money advantage advantage over Donald Trump. No, $7 million is not going to make the difference in the election here. Because I I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, the, you know, Trump world, and of course that's Republican Party plus Trump campaign, uh, said that they had 260 million cash on hand and the Democrats have not said that they have cash on hand, which means that they probably have a lot less than that. Quite possible. And uh, you, you can also expect that the Democrats are going to have less cash on hand. They, they may be closing that gap between what they have and what the, the Trump world campaign has. But there is a gap there. The Repu- Republicans do have that advantage. I, I think a bigger question that a lot of people are not focusing on yet, but but kind of need to is, what is this cash going to buy? We're, yeah. we're in crazy bizarro 2020 election mode where the candidates say for Donald Trump's rally in Oklahoma, <laughs> that being the exception. I mean, these candidates are not traveling. Their staffs are not traveling. There isn't the crisscrossing of the country that you would absolutely 100 percent be expecting right now in July, four months. And we are to the day today, four months before the election. None of that's happening. So, all right, they got all this money. They have this wonderful political wealth. How is it going to be spent? So I think what you can expect is that you're going to see more digital ads than than you could possibly consume. Television. We were talking about the death of television advertising for politics four years ago. Yeah, no, no, not so much. (laughs) The television is going to be this year and already is huge this year because every last cent is going to be spent not only on television too but every way people consume news every way people consume entertainment content if you can watch it if you can listen to it if you can read it expect to have a donald trump or a joe biden ad being uh, being paid for and that's going to be standing next to it and that's just going to be the way it's it's going to be and it's going to be more than it probably would have been otherwise if we weren't, again, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. All right. Switching gears a little bit. This is breaking news. Uh, you have talked on this show and have done so much great work on the Federal Elections Commission. Uh, uh, the fact that it has been an absentee organization. But I, I, I opened my my Twitter today and find out that now it's it's dead. What What is happening with the FEC? Well, Justin, the last time we talked about it, I believe we were in the midst of what ended up being about a nine-month de facto shutdown of the Federal Election Commission, because this is a six-member bipartisan commission that needs a minimum of four commissioners to do its high-level work, okay? If you have three commissioners, which was the case beginning last August and, and for the next nine months, They couldn't do anything for all intents and purposes. They couldn't enforce federal campaign finance laws. They couldn't conduct public meetings and a whole variety of other things. So finally, in May, Donald Trump's appointee or nominee to the FEC, who had been languishing, the Senate that hadn't taken up this nomination for more than two years, got a hearing, got confirmed. His name is Trey Trainer. He's an attorney from Texas. He even worked for the Trump campaign back in 2016. Well, he gets put on the Federal Election Commission. He gets named almost immediately chairman. They get their quorum back. They have a minimum of four commissioners. They conduct a meeting. They do some business, and boom, one of the other commissioners, she resigns. And (laughs) her resignation is official today, and the FEC is back down to three commissioners. Okay. So after their, their little moment in the sun, about a month, they now are back on ice again. And the the Federal Election Commission, four months away from the election, cannot do anything that it is set up and empowered by Congress to do, uh, which, again, involves all of the civil enforcement and regulation of the nation's campaign finance laws. So here we have 
again, billions and billions of dollars being poured into election 2020, and there's no cop on the beat. There's nobody calling balls and strikes. There's nobody who can take complaints and act on them. And also, too, this is a, not a high-profile thing, but a very important thing. If any political candidate, if any political committee, if any political actor has a question about election law and wants an official ruling from the federal government's agency that's designed to answer those questions, it can't get it. So nobody really even knows what the law is if they're not sure about it. So it's kind of a free-for-all now. And uh, yeah, the FEC is, is perhaps the weakest state it's ever been in during its 45-plus year history. Which is saying something, because it's been pretty feeble for a pretty long time, right? It, it, it is a historically neglected agency. It, it has been, uh, it, during large portions of its history, neglected in the sense that it probably doesn't, uh, it's certainly in the opinion of a lot of people out there, doesn't receive nearly as much money as it should. It is kind of a weird agency in that it is bipartisan. No more than three members of this six-member commission can come from any party. So it's designed to be weak. It, it was set up to be a commission that wasn't going to be dominated by the party in power or one party over another. So effectively, all these guys have to find a way to get along. And if they don't, there can be a lot of gridlock on, on very heady, important uh, issues involving election law. And, and we have a lot of deadlocks so at, at the FEC where you'll have a case and the commissioners just can't get the requisite four votes that they need to make a proactive decision on something. So, yeah, even during the best of times, Justin, the FEC can can be a very divided, ideologically split, gridlocked agency. Well, now they can't even do that because they're, they're just simply dead in the water until they get uh, another commissioner, at least one more commissioner, back on uh, the commission. And, you know, I get the question a lot, whose fault is this? Well, I think you can blame a couple of people. First of all, President Trump he, he's got three vacancies that he could fill. He's only been filling one at a time and only with Republicans. He, he should also be theoretically appointing Democrats to the commission because there's vacancies on, on Democratic seats. The Democrats in the Senate have offered up at least one person. Her name is Shauna Brossard. Uh, she's a FEC lawyer. Uh, she would be the first African-American commissioner to serve on the FEC ever in its 45-year history. And he just is... Uh, President Trump has refused to nominate her at this point. And uh, the Senate is really where the action is. The Republicans control it. They took two and a half years to get Trey Trainer, the new commissioner, put through the system and on the FEC. And it remains to be seen as to whether they're going to be able to do this in any kind of short order with a man by the name of Alan Dickerson, a conservative lawyer who Donald Trump did nominate to fill this newly vacant spot. So yeah, a lot of a lot of jockeying I just gave you there, but the bottom line is that until this new commissioner gets put on the FEC, it's gonna be minimum weeks and likely months before the FEC is back up and running. And in the meantime, the election moves on. I know, Dave, that I and all of our listeners know you as a sturdy newsman and not a prognosticator, but if you were to take a percentage chance uh, of how likely it would be that we get a functioning FEC before Election Day on November 3rd, what percentage would you give it? I'd say it's better than half. I think there's a willingness, and uh, particularly in, in the case of uh, Senator Roy Blunt uh, from Missouri, Republican, he leads the Senate Rules Committee, he's the chairman of that committee, and just a couple of months ago, he was banging the table, so to speak, and saying that the FEC needs to be up and running and Trey Trainer needs to be on the commission. Well, if you take him at his word, then he's also going to feel the same way about uh, this current situation with the FEC shut down yet again at its highest levels. So the, I'd say better than half, uh, but at the same time too, there is a distinct possibility that the election could go off for these last four months without the FEC anywhere. And even if the FEC got back up and running, say in six weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks from now, they're, they're not going to have any time to really do much of anything. So much of the election will, at that point, have already been run. And <laughs> if there are political candidates or committees out there doing bad things, breaking the law, violating the law, pushing the boundaries, well, 
the FEC, yeah, they can deal with that at some later date, but it's going to be so well after the fact, they're not going to have an opportunity to weigh in on anything related to election 2020 until after election 2020 is over. All right. But we're going to turn our eyes away from campaign money for a second because uh, you are now in the D.C. Bureau. Is it the newly formed D.C. Bureau or or just a, 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 a restocked D.C. Bureau for Business Insider, Dave? It, it is the brand new shiny spanking doesn't even have an office yet. D.C. Bureau of Business Insider. <laughs> no office because we're all working from home. From home, like yeah. Everyone else. But. Yeah, the Bureau just started up a, a couple of months ago. Business Insider, which is based in New York City, has bureaus around the country and in London and elsewhere. They had never had a, a formal presence in D.C. and decided that they were going to, you know, damn the pandemic, damn the economic turndown. They were going to forge forward. And uh, there's now a half a dozen of us uh, who've all come online uh, just in, in the past few weeks right now. And we are off to the races. So one of the first things that you have written in your new role at the D.C. Bureau is a subject that is near and dear to my heart. We covered here on this program. I can't remember if it was the Monday. I think it was the Monday episode, the PX3 Extra. And that is, of course, the Villages, the largest retirement community in the country, I believe, and uh, the subject of uh, much sturm and drong over the weekend after the president, Donald Trump, tweeted out, a uh, just charming video from the villages, he said sarcastically, where a a protest and counter protest led to much screaming and yelling, among which a uh, a, a chant of white power. Uh, uh, what did you learn about the villages? Well, as soon as I saw the video, and then as soon as I saw that it was from the villages, the campaign finance brain went into gear. And what I was wondering was, okay, I, I've read articles about the villages. Seems like a pretty strange place. The article I first remember reading about the villages was back several years ago about this crazy, tawdry tale of <laughs> sex swinging seniors and uh, people who were, you know, just getting drunk every night at these confabs and it was just like, you know, seniors gone wild. And yes. it, it just seemed like the, the craziest place in the craziest state of America, arguably Florida. And so what I was wondering here, because you have seen over the past few months, some coverage of the villages and, and how pro-Trump it is and uh, photos that I've seen where it just seems like every other house has uh, make America great again, Trump flag and whatnot. I want to look at the money and see truly whether this was just a lot of people supporting Donald Trump or if this was some sort of, you know, financial resource mecca for the Trump campaign. And uh, so burying the lead here, I mean, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> unbelievable for eleven dollars. So for the Trump campaign, every $11 that the Trump campaign receives from the villages, people in the villages, the Biden campaign receives $1. So I wanted to talk to people there, residents there, especially people who have given money to either the Trump campaign or the Biden campaign to understand whether this flashpoint, this video as somebody screaming white power is representative of uh, the community. And I, I got uh, from both sides, no, 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 no. This is a wonderful place. It's a friendly place. It's a very conservative place, but it, it's not, you know, some clan den here, which is what it's been made out to be by a lot of folks who just know the villages for one thing and one thing only, which is this video that Donald Trump tweeted. But uh, yeah, the support runs deep in the villages alone for this election cycle. More than five hundred thousand dollars has come from residents there to the Trump campaign. This is a very small area. Uh, yeah. And it, it's uh, I looked at the numbers, I ran the numbers, and the bottom line there is that it is definitely one of the most concentrated areas of support for the Trump campaign anywhere in the country when you measure it by dollars and cents. And uh, that's why perhaps uh, Donald Trump decided to go to the villages back in October to sign an executive order and talk to folks there. He uh, even mused that uh, he might consider when he leaves the White House becoming a, a villager, as the folks there like to call himself, but then quickly corrected himself to say, no, I can't leave Mar-a-Lago. Mar yeah, he has his own village, as it were. Uh, 
So, so you you spoke to you spoke to villagers then. You you uh, you you got the the on the ground uh, perspective. Uh, did they? I, I guess they were shamed by by this moment because it, it didn't even before the man yells white power, which you just know it's going to be a wild sentence when that's the end of it. Uh, uh, it, it was not exactly a model in decorum. <laughs> no, and the, the folks I spoke to said, look, these are the bad apples. These are the, the exceptions to the rule. No matter what community you live in, how wonderful, how Mayberry-esque it may seem to be, you're always going to have the the town idiot who does something crazy and stupid and gets hauled to the drunk tank or whatever the case may be. So they basically wanted to make it clear that they felt like this was a a safe and kind and genteel place most of the time, even though there are examples and and counterpoints to the point that they were making. Uh, But one thing that that really stuck out for me looking at the numbers here is not just the fact that there are a lot of Trump donors in the villages, but the depth of the, the interest that some of these Trump donors have in Donald Trump, um, there's a there's a we'd like to call them super donors, people who are not only going to give one donation to a political campaign, but make 10, 20, sometimes 50, 100 contributions, uh, sometimes day after day after day to a campaign, almost like they're just on Amazon, just, you know, just binge shopping. Uh, they're binge donating and saw a lot of examples of that in the villages where residents there were were making $20, $50 donations all the time to the Trump campaign. Uh, And that, you know, that really just shows that the people not only like Donald Trump, like what he stands for, but are willing to invest and invest and invest some more. It's almost like their 401k where they're putting money in every week or every month, but they're doing it almost as a political financial plan for giving donations, giving money to the Trump campaign and folks ask, well, all right, why do you like Donald Trump so much? Uh, he, he he does all this bombastic stuff. These videos come out. He retweets them, even though they're racist. What what keeps you given? What keeps you interested? And they say, well, yeah, don't, don't really like Donald Trump doing that kind of stuff, but still absolutely love what he stands for economically, still absolutely dig his foreign policy and making America great again mantra and that he's way better than any Democrat, and I'm never going to consider voting for a Democrat. So, of course, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. So got that a lot, too. And that seemed to really be the underlying current as to why people are sticking with Donald Trump and are supporting him as much now as they ever have been. And the money that's going to the Trump campaign now is uh, probably going to be exponentially more than the villagers gave in 2016 when Donald Trump was running for the first time. That is an interesting idea that I hadn't really thought about. But for those voters, and again, you know, if you are unfamiliar with Florida politics, uh, uh, the villages is a key element. If you are a specifically if you're a Republican candidate, you got to turn out the villages. And if they're excited for you and they vote en masse, which they do because they're older, uh, then it does uh, help you in, in you know tilting the balance there. But for them... I can't imagine how many of the villagers have Twitter accounts, so they'll mostly just know Twitter by how it's covered on TV. And and that's something that's a lot easier to just say, ah, whatever, uh, the media's freaking out about something else again, as opposed to the uh, 24-7 psychodrama that those of us that engage in Twitter as a platform experience. Yeah, it's very easy to brush it off as fake news or the, the media again just doing the media thing. Uh, but the villages is it, it's critical. It's critical for Donald Trump in the sense that if he's going to win Florida, which could be the most contested state in the union, uh, arguably, it's at least going to be among them when you throw in Michigan and Wisconsin and a few others. <laughs> Sumter County, which is where the villages primarily is located, it sprawls over three different counties, but where, where most of the population is, it has one of the highest voting rates in all of Florida among all counties and the villages has one of the highest voting rates among anywhere in Florida. So seniors are going to be absolutely positively critical to getting Donald Trump reelected if Donald Trump gets reelected. And hey, Florida, 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 just think of Tim Russert back in 
2000, we could absolutely have a repeat of that, I, I think, in many scenarios in 2020. So as a result, if uh, Donald Trump is going to be successful across the country and definitely in Florida, he needs to make sure that the folks in the villages and other areas that have high senior populations are not only excited about his campaign, but getting out to vote. And it seems that Donald Trump has not lost a whole heck of a lot of support in the villages, despite the villages being in the news and in national headlines for all the wrong reasons this week. Those are some pretty tricked out golf carts, though. Those are good looking golf oh. carts. I didn't know they made golf carts. I, I, bet, that I bet some of those suckers could go 60 miles an hour. Oh, they, yeah. They, they uh, look powerful. Dude, that Fast and the Furious movie at the Villages, Racing for Pinks, that'd be the way to go. Uh, uh, Tokyo Drift, you know, the, the, the Villages drag. All right, just to get you out of here, so uh, you are, are now a Business Insider. Are, are you writing more frequently than you would have been at the, the Center for Public Integrity, or are you still primarily doing the long-form stuff? Uh, what can we expect from the, the output of one Dave Leventhal? I will be writing a lot more than I did when I was wearing uh, an editor hat oftentimes at the Center for Public Integrity, which uh, I was there for seven and a half years, and I wish them absolutely all the best Some wonderful, wonderful journalists who are operating there. Uh, but yeah, you know, our deadlines at the Center for Public Integrity oftentimes are measured in weeks and months at Business Insider. It's uh, sometimes days and hours. hours yeah. <laughs> the bread and butter of what I hope I'm going to be doing is going to be uh, in uh, exploratory and enterprising and investigative work that you're you're not going to find anywhere else. So that that's my 10 second sales pitch for you. But uh, it's an awesome group of people. Uh, Darren Samuelson is uh, the bureau chief who I worked with at Politico and have known for a long time. Robin Bravender, who I also worked with at Politico, is coming aboard this next week. Tom Lobianco, who wrote an awesome book about Mike Pence, is there. Kayla Epstein, uh, who is just a fantastic reporter who writes a lot about the digital world, is there as well. We've got a couple of other people who are coming online in a couple of weeks as well. So it's an exciting time. And uh, yeah, not too many news organizations are creating DC bureaus this year or ever. So it's uh, really fun to be a part of something that is absolutely brand new and uh, get to help build it from uh, from the ground up. It was a really, really exciting opportunity that uh, I really couldn't pass up. I mean, in, in a world where, and I'm sure it's the same for you, uh, a lot of journalists are, are losing jobs. I was very excited to celebrate a journalist friend of mine getting a job. So uh, congratulations <laughs> to you. Congratulations to Business Insider. And everybody, uh, uh, now's the time. Follow Dave Leventhal on Twitter, especially now, because you're going to be be pumping out a lot more stuff. And uh, you know it's going to be quality because you've listened to his perspective here on the show. Well, thanks, man. It's going uh, to be a crazy four months, but I don't have to tell you that. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm sure we'll speak to you a few times before Election Day. Uh, Dave, what is your Twitter? It's just simply at Dave Leventhal, and that's L-E-V-I-N-T-H-A-L on the last name. Fantastic. All right, man. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Likewise. Have a good one. And that's going to wrap it up for us today. Want to shout out our $10 tier, Modesto's own Logan, Cisco, Thor, NH, Blumpkin, Chad, Headphones, Neil, Water, Ice, Scoop, MacBook Pro, Dallas Danger, Taylor, Middle Age, Mike, DTNS, Hack 5, Brad, Wicked, Uncle Schnick, Utah, Jimmy, Montana, Frozen Summer, Zach and Cheese, Captain Bunzo, Zombie Doc, Berkeley, Steven, your boy, Craig, TroubleFilm.com, Robert, Mr. Tallyman, D-Laser, and I poop my pants, Alec, Government Unfiltered, Spawn! Jerry, Gamer Goo, Andres, Archie, J. Milius, Emily, Olin and Angela, DL, Brian, Insert Scoop Name, Nomadic Terran, Miranda, Robert Herschel, Glenn, Wolf, Brand, Jilly Scoop, Richard, Nick, Lindsay, Random Complexity, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? You head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You want to follow me on Twitter? You do so at Justin R. Young. You want to... Uh, follow me on Instagram. I mean, geez, I don't post there a lot, but you can do it. Justin R. Young. But till next time. Hey, guys, have a happy 4th of July. Uh, obviously, we are in a crazy moment in history. We are in a crazy moment with our country. But the one thing that I like to do when we 
celebrate the idea of America, at least for me. What's worth celebrating is that America is a promise. America's a promise of a certain way of living. It's not a guarantee. We've certainly fulfilled that promise for many better than others. But the promise is what counts. And also drinking light beer and blowing things up. Socially distanced. Till next time. This is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more. Man, they're talking about politics, but this is the only program that's got the stones to talk about. Oh, three! Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>